Right. Well, many organizations have mission statements and vision statements. We have those, and I think those things are good. They're helpful. They keep everyone on the same page. And whilst these are important for a church, it's just as important, if not more important, to make sure we have an identity statement. Because we're going to be doing lots of things, but who is the we that are doing things? Who is we? Well, our identity statement as Redeemer is that we are a gospel-formed family on mission. And what we've been doing over the summer is taking that sentence, that mission, that identity statement into chunks and doing a service on each. So we've had uh, gospel formed, we've had family, we've had this week is on mission. What does it mean to be on God's mission? Some of you may not think you're a missionary because your definition means someone who leaves their home culture to some far-flung place where there's probably like a dirt floor and you're talking about Jesus and the Bible to them. But that's not really that true because we are all missionaries for what we love. We are all missionaries for the things that we love. We are evangelists for what we think is good, for what we think is true, for what we think is beautiful. The things we love, the things that excite us, that's what we talk about. That's what we organize our lives around. I mean, two mothers in a room will inevitably talk about their kids. It's not a theory, it's a fact. Like a universal physics fact. I mean, I'm a music nerd. Michael Buckley is a music nerd. Kathleen's husband is a music nerd. If we are around each other, we will speak a very strange language that very few people are able to enter into. It's weird. And also, we sacrifice for the things that we love. We give up some things to get other things, some things that we don't think are worth as much to things that we think are worth more. Having a small child means no freedom or clean houses for the inevitable future. Loving what an artist does means time spent listening to them, paying for their stuff, going to their openings, money spent going to their gigs. We talk about these things, and we want others to join in with us when we see something we really love, because we're all missionaries. But there's a problem. Because if we love lots of things, we also have competing loves. We love all sorts of good things, but we also really love ourselves. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. I mean, my competing desire, I love my kid, but I also love my time for quiet chill time. Guess what wins that one? I want to care for others, but I also really want to care for myself. Those two aren't always very compatible. And I think our competing loves, that leads to at least three things. The first is we find out that we're selfish. We really love ourselves. If given the opportunity to stay self-obsessed, we stay that way. It's not like we need to try and be selfish. We love ourselves. And sometimes the things we love, though, aren't in, aren't in our lives, aren't worth sacrificing for. Also, we find out we're small-minded, because if we love ourselves, that means our mission in life is really kind of small. We say we'd like to see big changes in the world, in the neighborhood, or something like that, but really we're just happy being comfortable. Though there's some happiness in that, that's a very small way to live, and humans were meant for more than that. Also, we find out, so we're selfish, we're small-minded, we also find out that we're hypocrites. Because we're all missionaries, we're also all hypocrites. We say we love our kids, but what about that 4 a.m. wake-up? Do you love them then? You say you care for your friends, but what about when that conflicts, when we just need time for yourself? We have complicated hearts. And the negative side of that leaves us selfish, small-minded, and hypocritical. We don't want others to know about that side of us, of course, so we'd rather hide it. We're shameful about it, and sometimes we get stuck in those ways, and we can't get out. Now, that is not an identity we want to embrace, though it might be who we are. And in the Bible today, we will learn how Jesus frees us from that old identity, freed from that selfish, small-minded, hypocritical ways. And we also learn that through Jesus how we're, able, we're liberated to live a more open life, an honest life, an honorable life, and a, one that's part of God's mission, which is way bigger than the mission we were living for before. So... 
before we even really start, that we have to do a little bit of like pre-work because we're like jumping in the middle of a letter that this guy Paul wrote a long time ago. So if you look in verse 1, it says, therefore. So if it starts with a therefore, what, what is Paul building on? Um, well, the previous sections of the letter, basically, that therefore sums up this right here. It says, Paul is saying, we go about life with, with covered faces, with veiled faces. And for everyone who turns to Jesus, he uncovers our face and gives us unfiltered freedom. Now, this new freedom means we get God's goodness ourselves, which is amazing, but we also get to reflect that goodness to others. And so we're in the process of being made new. We're given a new identity, one that is now is rooted in Jesus and not ourselves. So for those who are in Jesus, we have been given so much, and that's all kind of in that little therefore word. That's all what that stands for. So we don't have an identity to achieve. Like if I try and do a bunch of stuff, like I'll end up being a good person or I'll be accepted. Our identity is already received through God. We don't need to work for any of these gifts, and we're going to find out as we go through this verse, these verses that all of these are gifts that were given to us. We have it already. This is all of what Paul is wrapped up with that therefore. And that's also what Paul's talking about when he says ministry. He says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry. That's basically all the stuff he was talking about in the previous verses. So everyone who follows Jesus has this new identity. It's the identity of a missionary albeit a new kind of missionary, because we've been given new life. Something insane is going on back there. And that is my son. And this identity that we have, this gift that we're given, what does it look like? Well, it's one thing to have been given a gift. If I get, so Michael just is playing with his, a new guitar, which is looking very nice, I might say. Say I gave that guitar to Michael, which I didn't because I'm not that cool. Um, if I was to give him that guitar and it's just sitting in the corner of his room, it wouldn't matter if I gave him that gift or not. It's the fact that he uses it. He's playing with it. He's practicing it. So we might, maybe we're given this, uh, this gift of the identity of being a missionary, but if we don't practice that, then what's the point of the gift? It's not that practicing it gives us the gift. We have the gift already. It's like, what does it mean to actually live that out? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And three main things that we're going to be looking at, three words, demonstrating, declaring, and joining. Demonstrating, declaring, and joining. So the first word here is demonstrating. Demonstrating the gospel in our lives through how we live. If we practice our identity as a missionary, we're freed from shame. We're freed to live honest and honorable lives. And being freed from shame... Living honest and honorable lives, that sounds great. Who doesn't want to do that? I want to live an honest life. I want to live an honorable life. No one says they want to live a dishonorable life. Well, where do I get that from? Well, it's here in verse 2. It says, We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That secret and shameful ways, like literally in the Greek, is basically the hidden things of shame. So it's shameful, it's hidden. Shame and hidden lives go hand in hand. Now, this past morning, speaking of my son, um, Colin, or this past Easter morning, Colin got up earlier than us and somehow found his way downstairs. We have a gate. Somehow he wriggled his way through it. I don't know how he does that. But he got downstairs before us, and before we knew it, we knew he was awake, probably into something. So I got up, and I go into the kitchen. I don't see him. I walk around in the middle room area. He's not there. I go in the front room. I'm like, where the heck is he? And then I hear, I'm quiet. I hear a rustling. I look behind. We have this tall yellow chair in a corner. And I, I peer over the chair, and there's Colin. There's foil. There's chocolate. He found a Kinder Egg somehow that was on our kitchen counter. And he's, like, demolishing that thing. He is killing it. And, 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 but he knows he's not doing something right because he's there hiding behind in the corner, hiding behind a tall chair. So he knew he was doing something wrong. And actually, when I found him, he even hit his face. 
as if I couldn't see what he was doing. He felt shame. He hid. Now, we grow up, and we don't hide behind tall chairs in our front rooms anymore, but we still find ways to hide our lives. We still find ways to hang on to our shame that we feel, and by ourselves, if we stay that way, we're alone in it. But our God is merciful. He doesn't seek to shame us. We have more than enough of that already. God is not a shame bringer. He liberates us from shame. Verse 2 says that the root of our shame, what led us to shame, all the, the things we should not have been doing, all that has been done away with, and that's not who we are anymore. We don't live in those secret and hidden ways anymore, so the shame that flows out of those things doesn't follow us. And when we do mess up, because we're not going to be perfect, we don't have a vindictive like, overlord trying to get more, heap more shame upon us. We have a merciful Father who wants us to come to him. So we're freed from the bad thing. We're freed from shame. And being freed from shame, we get to move forward and live honest and honorable lives. So the rest of verse 2 says, By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Another way to say this is that the gospel is demonstrated through our lives to everyone. We should live commendable lives in front of everyone, lives in line with the gospel. So we should be honest at setting forth the truth plainly. And we should be honorable, commending ourselves to others. So someone who not, who's not honest and not commendable is your basic con man. And that, we know that's not good. But someone who is honest and honorable, not only are we open, we're not just authentic, we also commend our lives to everyone's conscience. And that's scary. I don't really want to live that way if I think about it. It does not mean perfect, by the way. But it does mean taking responsibility for when we do wrong things. And it does mean that our lives should be such that we don't need to hide. We don't need to hide our lives anymore. We keep everything we do out in the open, the whole truth on display, so that those who want to can see and judge for themselves. And this isn't a pointer to us and how amazing we are, how we have this like, perfect, nice little lives. It points to a merciful God who has given us this gift. But it's not about us, and there should be a marked humility in our lives. We're called servants, and we should act like it. We should be giving our lives to good causes, like serving the homeless, for example, like loving our neighbors. A good example of this, I think, is Louis Armstrong. Almost everyone knows this image, Louis Armstrong. He's one of the most famous figures in history, let alone in American music. Louis Armstrong, the trumpet player, the singer, saying, what a wonderful world, hello, Dolly. Oh, they had a, kind of a crazy voice and a crazy character. You know, he was a bit of a late bloomer in his musical career. He, um, earlier on, he played with two separate bands. And unless you're a music nerd like Michael and Kathleen's husband, Lawrence, um, you probably wouldn't know their names. King Oliver and Fletcher Henderson. By the way, those are amazing names. King Oliver, Fletcher Henderson. By themselves, they should be remembered just for the names. I love those names. But no one knows who they are. And in both of those groups, they didn't appreciate Armstrong's talent at all. They made Armstrong play second, second trumpet. That's like a supporting role. And when they recorded, they had a mic, and they would all kind of stand around the microphone. They made Armstrong like stand a little bit further away because his sound would kind of break through and would kind of disrupt the ensemble sound they were going for. They didn't like his singing voice. It's Louis Armstrong. Like, he's the most famous singer probably anyone could think of right off the bat. A talent like Louis Armstrong going for years unnoticed. And for these bands, he didn't fit their paradigm of music. They were more of this old-school New Orleans kind of style of ensemble playing, and everyone's playing together all the time. Armstrong was like this separate solo guy, like a very uh, an intense personality. So he played in these bands for years. Do you think he knew he was gifted, maybe? Of course he did. Everyone was telling him he was. He was there in the background, and he was ambitious, and he wasn't recognized. Surely he was frustrated. 
Of course, eventually he put together his own band. He didn't just become famous. He became an icon. But while he was playing with those other bands, he stayed with it. He kept humble. He didn't throw some kind of diva tantrum. And later on, when he was recognized as pretty much like the most famous American of his time, he didn't say, yeah, 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 these other guys, they didn't recognize me, but thankfully I had to strike out on my own. He's, I mean, that, what an amazing sob story to tell. Not only is he amazing, but other people didn't recognize him, and he went through hardship. He didn't tell that story. He said, King Oliver, he's one of my idols. I'm grateful for him. Fletcher Henderson, he's one of my idols. I'm grateful for them. I got to play in their bands. I got to learn from them. I got to play music with them. Many people who have been far less talented have acted far worse. So that kind of humility, that kind of acceptance, that kind of honorable living should also be what our lives are like as followers of Jesus. When we aren't recognized for whatever our gifts might be, when our gifts feel like they're forgotten, or when we're told to stand away from the mic, we should be humble. And the few times that we might get recognized for the good things that we do, we should still be humble because we're servants. And so we shouldn't get bent out of shape when people treat us as servants. Now let me just say, if you find um, yourself outside of Christianity here, don't make the same mistake that Armstrong's former band leaders made. So jazz nerds know about King Oliver and they know about Fletcher Henderson, but Louis Armstrong's name lives on. Oliver and Henderson missed out on Armstrong's greatness because he didn't fit their paradigm. Sometimes our own paradigms, what we think Christianity is about, leaves us to miss out on the greatness of Jesus. And don't let that be you. Now, saying that we should live like servants that are honest and honorable, that's not a very controversial thing to say. It's not offensive. But living this way is offensive. It's an offense, it's, 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 it's an offense to be able to live as a servant. Because saying you're here to serve the community is great. And it was like, oh, that's very happy, very good. But then being treated like a servant, that doesn't feel very good, and no one signs up for that. So if we try to live servant-based, honest, and honorable lives in our own power, it's just not going to work. It's just too hard to live this way by ourselves. And that's what it means to lose heart in verse 1. Even from the beginning here, Paul is saying, do not lose heart. Because we've been given this ministry. There's another way of living outside of through ourselves. We've been given an identity that already empowers us to live this way. And we get this, this identity as a missionary by the power of God and his mercy. Instead of trying to achieve some level of being good by ourselves, God has already given us the identity of being a missionary. He has given us a gift that allows us to live as servants because he himself is empowering us. Because we need supernatural power to affect the kind of change we want to see in this world. We need supernatural power to be freed from the shame that plagues us. That little saying of be the change you want to see, that's great and everything, but I messed up. I can't be the change I want to see. I need something bitter, bigger, bigger and better than myself. And God is the one who gives us his power. We don't need to work it up. We don't need to pray super hard or believe perfectly or live an amazing life. We don't need to prove ourselves. We're not good enough for that. We can't. But because we've been given this identity, that's why we pray hard. That's why we work hard. That's why we believe. Because we've been given the thing and we believe through that. The only thing we need is to be needy. So we're free from shame from hiding to live honest and honorable lives. Are we practicing this? Does this sound like you? So that's a demonstrating. This is declaring, declaring the gospel with our words. We are freed from self-obsession to speak truth into everyday life. And before we even start talking about words, notice how we first start talking about, talking about how we live. Because if we don't lead with our lives, people will not care the words that we say. No matter how right they might be, they just won't matter. So it's important that we talk about how we live. We also need to talk about 
what we say, how we use our words. Verse 2 says, we don't use deception. We don't deceive people with how we live, nor do we distort the word of God. We don't contort the Bible for our own means. We don't take away parts that we find hard to agree with or find offensive. If your God, whatever it might be, whatever you're following, does not offend you in any possible way, that means your God is probably yourself. The Christians, we are not our own God. We don't make the truth. We submit to the truth. And our job isn't to tell the whole world how to live. That's not our job. Our job is to tell the church how, what it means to keep following Jesus. So we don't make it more convenient. We don't make it more profitable. We don't make it easier. We don't make it less controversial. It's just not our place to be. So that's what we're not to do. What, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to not preach ourselves, as what verse 5 says. We don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And if we do talk about ourselves, it's ourselves as, as Jesus' servants. So this isn't complicated. We don't preach ourselves that we love to, but Jesus as the Lord. And preaching, by the way, isn't just what I'm doing now. It's how we use our words, because we're all missionaries. We all, we all talk about the things that excite us the most. We all um, proclaim good things to each other. For the Christian, the foundation of all we do is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus being Lord isn't just a religious thing. It's a complete way of life and touches all aspects of our lives. Jesus as Lord means there's hope when we find ourselves without a job. Who's in control of the universe? He can handle our small request for a job. And more than that, he loves to. Are we giving ourselves to him? Jesus as Lord means that in our loneliness, hope and joy can actually be found. We can experience loneliness. For the Christian, though, we always have God with us, who's been in our shoes, and even worse. Are we taking advantage of that? So if you follow Jesus, know this. God empowers you through your words. Your words, as much as they line up to this, have the power to see what is broken, to care for it, to offer restoration and wholeness that would otherwise be completely impossible. This isn't for the experts. This is for the missionaries. God gives the words. Are we practicing this? If not, what are we using our words for? We were in the... um, Cotswolds recently for the first time. It's a beautiful place. It's a place that all Americans think that England really is. <laughs> Perfect, quaint, cute. No litter anywhere. It's beautiful. There are areas of outstanding natural beauty, which is another great name for a place. Let's call that place an area of outstanding natural beauty. I wonder what that means. Now, so when you roll up to one of these signs, it's like, ah, oh, well, this must be very nice. There's a sign proclaiming it. Now, if you roll up to one of these signs, you don't marvel at the sign. I mean, actually, it's, it's a pretty sign. But what's nicer is the landscape that is behind, or, or even this nice house. The sign points to something bigger than itself. And this is how it should be when we use our words. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus. Answers to our problems aren't in trying harder and doing more ourselves or in cleverness of speech. They're all found in Jesus. How ridiculous would it be to, for a sign to try and outdo the landscape, for a sign to be the thing itself, or for a sign to point somewhere else altogether? The sign has nothing on the landscape, and the reason for its existence is to draw attention to the landscape and put the landscape on display. Now, this isn't just reserved for super spiritual times like a Sunday morning or afternoon, as we are in, or the peak of a mountain whilst you're communing with nature and slightly levitating. We're all called to speak the truth into everyday life, and all of these words connect with all parts of our lives. Most of our lives are in the mundane the washing up, doing laundry, 
getting up in the morning when you don't want to. And our complicated hearts are at work just as much in the mundane as they are in the big moments of life. So it's speaking the truth of Jesus and what he's done into our lives as we do the washing up. I know you probably are never grumpy when you do any kind of washing up. Sometimes I am. But what would it mean for someone else to come and lovingly speak the truth of who your identity is in that moment while you're not feeling so excited? When someone someone comes to us with a problem, do we have anything better to offer them with other than it's going to be okay? That kind of platitude does not help the person. just makes you feel maybe a little bit better. Now, when I'm down and discouraged, I need the truth of being brought from death to life, being injected into me. I need to hear the words of the gospel that through Jesus, I don't need to work and find my acceptance. That through Jesus, he's already overjoyed and ecstatic about me. I don't need to try and achieve my identity. I've already received it. Nothing I can do can change this. And the Father loves me as much as he loves Jesus. Life with Jesus means we're empowered to speak that kind of truth into everyday life. So are we practicing this? So demonstrating and declaring, that's how we live, that's what we say. But in all this, really, there is a problem. There can be a problem in all this. Because if we're seeking to change people, convert people, transform people, we're in trouble. If we're seeking to be the wholeness that broken people are seeking, we're in trouble. If we by ourselves, or even just us together, we can probably do a lot of really cool stuff just us by ourselves. If we, just us by ourselves, think we're going to enact real change in this world, we're in trouble. But isn't that what a missionary does? Ah, but here's the problem. We just can't do it because it's not our mission. It's just not in our power as human beings by ourselves to be able to enact the kind of change that we really need in our lives. So look at verses uh, 3 through 4. Because this is another problem on top of that problem. It says, Even if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So this verse says that there are people living in brokenness and they're blind to it. It's not like they're yearning for something more. They're broken and they're blind. So we can't do it. And people are blind to it. But as God's children, we're given the identity of missionary. And that means we get to join God in his mission. Because our mission is not ours. We don't own it. It's God's. It's been his since before there was time. We only get to join it for our brief momentary blip that we're here on earth. God has been at work in Charlton before us and will be at work in Charlton after us. We don't need to bring him here. He's already here. We don't need to be Jesus to others. Only Jesus can be Jesus to others. But what we get to do, we get to be those signposts. We get to point to him. We get to point to a God who's already here, already present, already working, looking to liberate others from their shame to lives of of openness and freedom. Maybe you're here yourself realizing that you're missing out. Well, this is what Jesus does. He rescues people in darkness and gives them light, gives them the gift of light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Using the language of the creation of the world, our God chose to shine his light into our complicated hearts. Our hearts were once dark and void and alone, selfish, small-minded, hypocritical. But now we're filled. We're filled with light. We're known. We're liberated to live more fully, more wholeheartedly. So this act of God is a miracle. That new life is breathed into what was dead and decaying before. And this is what God is up to. This is what his mission looks like. And this is actually the inspiration of where our logo comes from. 
is a, those lines, not that this represents it now, but this idea of our, of our lives being orientated towards God and God's love being orientated towards us, His grace permeating every part of our lives. And reading this verse reminds me of what the early church was about. They lived in really super radical ways. There's a letter in 130 that uh, was describing what the early Christians were like to a Roman audience here, just some brief quotes. It says, They share a common table, but not a common bed. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They're reviled, but bless. This kind of radical church adopted children who were left for dead, made sure nobody else was in need, and if people were in need, they would give. The more that the church follows that kind of Jesus, we find that Jesus is actually more of a punk rock Jesus than a soft rock Jesus. He's not trying to make us just be nice people. He's in very many ways radical. And you don't need a large number of people living this way to enact real gospel change. This small and very unimpressive group in 130 helps spark an international movement that we call Christianity. So let's contrast that with maybe how we're talked about today. Rightly or wrongly, we're described as maybe irrelevant as best, banal, nice. And at worst, we're opium of the masses, where we prey upon the weak, or even we let sex offenders off the hook as long as they work for us. Now, maybe some of that criticism is unfair, but surely we deserve some of it. The real question is, in spite of criticism, whatever it might be, are we living like the radical early church, or are we just happy to be nice? As a church, we have a mission. And our mission statement is to join, joining God in the renewal of Manchester. Renewal is another way of saying bringing wholeness to brokenness, bringing light to darkness, bringing new life to death. And that's a big vision. How can we possibly do this? Because we all have complicated hearts. How are we going to possibly do this? Well, when we follow Jesus, we are saved from our small missions, our small hearts, and saved to God's big mission. And God's mission is so big. We can't even, I can try and use some words, but this won't even possibly encompass the massiveness of it all. It includes people from all kinds of backgrounds and cultures and identities. White, middle class, black, immigrant, well-off, working class, homeless, refugee, skeptic, believing, gay, straight, haters, lovers. God's invitation extends to all kinds of people here and further away that we might be liberated from our chains, free to live in a new way following Jesus. And this is bigger than you and your family, bigger than our neighborhood. This is multi-ethnic, multilingual, multicultural, multi-continental. This is the mission Jesus is on. This is why we, Redeemer, want to help spark a movement for Jesus in Charlton. We have no other choice but to join him in this. And why would we do otherwise? So Jesus frees us from our past and gives us a new life. And this is good news for those of us with complicated, broken hearts. The only way Jesus could change our nitty hearts was for him to take on all that was wrong with them and make them new. This is one of the reasons that Jesus died on the cross. He found our selfishness. He searched after our small-mindedness. He tracked down our hypocrisy. He saw they held us back. He saw they kept us in chains. But he had a plan to liberate us. It would cost him his life. But because he loved us, he went through with it. And as he was lifted on the cross, our broken hearts were placed upon him. Taking all of that with himself, he died. And for all those who are with Jesus, so did our brokenness. Then as Jesus was raised from the dead, that same power that gave Jesus this new life now resides in us. We have it. It's the gift of ministry. For everyone who follows Jesus, you don't need to work for anything. You're already new. So let's live out of that newness then. Why would we go back to chains? Let's take that next small baby step forward as we understand more of our identity as God's mission. 
And that's what we'd celebrate when we come to the table. Jesus told us to do this often so we don't forget because we're prone to forgetting why we do what we do and who we are. And on the cross, Jesus' body was broken, as were our broken hearts. And his blood was poured out, and through that gave us the gift of new life. Now, there are lots of different kinds of emotions that we have when we come to something like this. Um, but today, let's make it joy, because we get to work out of this new, this new identity we've been given. We knew our old life is gone and forgotten, but now we have a new life. And that's why this is something that only Christians do. So if you believe Jesus, you're welcome to come up. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer or anything. But what this does, what this action does means you believe that Jesus is Lord. And maybe you have never believed that before, and this is a time for you to believe that. We would welcome you to come up and join with us as we partake in the table together.